0: Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm your host, Kristen Soltis-Anderson. This week, Margie Omero is off at an undisclosed location enjoying the holidays. We will be off, both of us, next week. Um, but for this week, I'm thrilled to be joined by guest co-host Patrick Graffini, also of Echelon Insights. Uh, and we're going to be talking today about his new analysis of the most normal places in america patrick thank you for joining me great
1: to be here again
0: so there was after the 2016 election a great deal of focus on we need to understand real america that too many of these media folks are stuck inside this bubble they live in the acela corridor they don't get what real america is and this led to a variety of columns being written about you know conversations held at rural gas stations that tell us what we need to know about Trump's America. You propose there is a better way to understand what, quote unquote, real America is. Yeah, so we
1: oftentimes uh, conceptualize this in terms of these polarities where you have these extremely blue or extremely metropolitan areas that are culturally ascendant. You saw this in the Amazon HQ2, that whole search um, where you're trying to find these places that stand out because they have a lot of tech talent. And it turns out they go to D.C. and New York after all. And on the on the flip side, you've obviously had a whole bunch of bellwaves reporters uh, venture out from that universe out to the diners of West Virginia where Donald Trump wins by 50 points. And, um, you know, that got me thinking at least about uh, what is is the place that isn't all red and isn't all blue, but really is purple, but purple not just from a political standpoint, but purple from a cultural standpoint um, that's in the middle on demographics, that's in the middle on income, that's in the middle on education. Um, And it's possible using census data, using election results, using a variety of different data sources to blend these together to come up with what we're calling the Middle America Project, which is a ranking of all the counties in the United States by how representative they are of the country as a whole.
0: What was the the most normal, well, the most representative... Well, what's the phrase I should use? Normal seems like it's normal. like loaded. Average almost sounds insulting. Uh, yeah, right? but the the, the I, we'll we'll use the word normal. Uh, where was it? What was the top county on your list? Dauphin
1: County, Pennsylvania, home of Harrisburg, um, which is interesting in and of itself in that it was a county that, um, you know, Hillary Clinton, you know, was supposed to say she won the popular vote and she won by two percentage points and she won Dauphin County by three percentage points. But it was in the middle of a state that is obviously more pivotal in presidential politics. Um, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania for the first time for a Republican since 1988, Um, And what it used to be, I used to live in Pennsylvania, in the Philly area, and uh, what it used to be it was the Philly suburbs used to be the big battleground that you'd have every four years. Yeah, my parents are from
0: Bucks County, and so that's always like one of those counties. Yeah, and that's still pretty close, but a lot
1: of the other counties in that region have trended really blue. Um, And so that no longer is the battleground. That's more of the Democratic base of the state. And what you're actually seeing, the battleground is migrating out – To the central part of the state, it's migrating to some of these smaller cities. Allentown also scores pretty highly on this measure. And what these things, places share in common, these aren't tiny villages. These aren't small towns in 1950s America. They're oftentimes, um, you know, the counties that rank highest in this are usually small cities, and you even have some bigger cities like Phoenix, Maricopa County, a big county that encompasses both Phoenix and the suburbs of Phoenix, also ranks highly. Um, We are a pretty urban society, but we're not, um, you know, characterized exclusively by the DCs and the New Yorks of the world. So you tend to find uh, is that the county that's sort of at that midpoint between the West Virginia Diner and Uh, The out-of-touch Beltway Elite turns out to be kind of a small to mid-sized city somewhere, um, you know, in a place like Pennsylvania. Even in the Northeast, you could actually kind of find a fair amount of these places.
0: What I really want to see you do next is like the Dave Wasserman Cracker Barrel versus Whole Foods thing. I want you to plot out where every TGI Friday's Chili's and Applebee's is in America and see if your counties like dramatically over-index for them. Because I I feel like that's kind of the – I mean, so was it fifth on your list is Seminole County – Florida. Is that, is, is was, oh, that was some of the I think it was number
1: seven. I I have to remind these because I'm getting media requests from v- v- these various cities. <laughs> now.
0: Oh, how was your WFTV? That was like my the ABC <laughs> that, I grew did up one.
1: With? I did Harrisburg Radio. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of interest in uh, in these places. Not just obviously like from a from a standpoint of are these the new, there's always this fascination with is something a bellwether county, you know, heading into 2020, where can we go to figure out what's the bellwether counties to look at? And everybody uh, was it Dave Weigel likes to talk about crucial Waukesha <laughs> County. Right. I mean, it's sort of like everything as though everything about the election is going to hinge on one county. Right. That, that analysis, however, often turns out to be false because mm-hmm. the uh, something that is a battleground county in one election turns out not to be that competitive in the next election. And that was especially true in 2016 with all the shifts demographically uh, in voting patterns.
0: I will totally cop to that. So Seminole County being toward the top of your list. So for those who are unfamiliar with the geography of the Orlando area, Orlando itself is in Orange County, which is the county I grew up in. Um, Seminole County is just kind of like the the suburbs just to the north of downtown. I am pretty sure that when we do focus groups at Echelon in Orlando, I'm 90% sure that our focus group facility is in Seminole County. I think it's just north enough on I-4 to be in Seminole. Um, but the you know on election night in 2016 i was focused on looking at how were trump and clinton doing in orange county because i was like oh orlando is this very good purple area i will look at orange county which is where i grew up and that'll give me a sense and actually hillary clinton was hitting her numbers just fine in orange county orange county had changed demographically enough that orange county was not the peak Normal swing anymore. It was Seminole County, just to the north, where some of that change had been a little less pronounced, that was suddenly the kind of median type area.
1: Right. So you, you, we've seen the dramatic change in the rank ordering of counties in both directions. It's not just in one direction. Obviously, it's still a very close country. I'm glad you mentioned focus groups because I think that's that's almost one of the rare. I mean, that's a big side of our business, and it's a side of the uh, you know polling industry. And I you know, when I'm often traveling for a project, I always find it interesting. You know, some of these facilities uh, we go to are very nice and sometimes tend to be in high-rise buildings, either downtown or in some city or some very nice suburban office park. And I I often get to thinking of, you know, even in this environment, even the suburbs, uh, how representative is that of the country as a whole? I know they recruit from all places surrounding that. Um, but I'm very interested to see what other focus group facilities are there in some of these out-of-the-way places uh, that we could maybe turn to to find kind of that slice of Americana uh, that might be a little bit more represent. I mean, if, to the extent that, you know, we want to talk to people who are sort of a representative slice of America, uh, these are the places to go.
0: Yeah, so when I whenever I have clients ask me where do I think that they should do focus groups? Orlando, and again not just because that's where I'm from, but like Orlando is one place that I suggest and I'm glad your data now confirms like a suburban office park in Seminole County is not the worst place to do a focus group if you're looking to like in some ways eliminate dramatic geographic, you know, influence. Um but also at Columbus, Ohio is another place where I will often if a client is looking for a focus group in a very normal location. I will propose Columbus. I got to look up where Columbus came in on your list.
1: I don't think it came in that high, actually. Interesting. Uh, You know, I don't think it came in that high. I think the most normal county in Ohio turns out to be Summit County, which is Akron, Ohio, which is fun fact where I got married and, you know, where a lot (laughs) of my like uh, in-laws family is from. Uh, And so uh, it's a very blue collar type city Mm -hmm. where it used to be extremely Democratic, used to vote for the Democrat by 20 points. And I think Trump came pretty close. I don't think he won it, but he came pretty close, you know, on the way to winning Ohio. So that's also representative of the shift, right? Uh, That's sort of this, the most median county, at least in the state of Ohio, being a, a little bit less of Columbus, you think about sort of more up and coming, educated um, home of the big university, and it's actually more of a blue-collar uh, type place.
0: So tell me a little bit about how you got this together. Um, you know, you're not just looking at where is the most politically purple area, but as you mentioned, a whole bunch of other factors. What were the variables that you were looking at to define this?
1: Education levels, demographics, um, population growth, uh, things like whether or not how many people had been born in state, um, brought in some religion uh, data from a different data source, you know, tracking sort of religious congregations in all, uh, you know, all 50 states in every county. Um, so I'll, I'll pull a whole bunch of different things because, you know, you find this, again, it's very easy to look at which counties were just close in the last election. I mean, that's easy to do. But in terms of sort of understanding what the underlying drivers of that political behavior are, it's oftentimes, you know, how many people have a college degree? What's sort third of in the income? Is this is this place getting becoming better or worse off economically? So it was really uh, geared to finding, you know, bringing blending together all those different drivers.
0: Now, if these are places that are kind of the middle of the road now. Do we have any ability to kind of look back and say, like, how what were these places like 20 years ago? I mean, are these places that maybe they were more politically conservative and they've become more progressive or the other way around? I mean, ha, were these places always the median or? No,
1: they probably uh, weren't. I mean, you know, probably. Is there any
0: pattern to how they've changed? Uh,
1: uh, yeah, I would be very interested to look at that because I assume that they have changed. um, You know, they've changed uh, to some degree based on the uh, political behavior, and we've seen pretty dramatic shifts in political voting behavior in the last—never mind 20 years—in the last six years, right? Since 2012, you've had you've had counties that were reliably Republican or reliably Democratic, and that have completely flipped uh, in the post-Trump era. And so, I think that this is a little bit calibrated to what are the drivers in the trump era and the a big driver of political behavior in the trump era is education so we weighted education a little bit more highly because that seems to be a really mm-hmm. you know big driver of voting behavior right now
0: and maybe that's also why now that i'm thinking about it a place like columbus might be a little different i mean if you have the ohio state university you know in a, you're going to have perhaps a more highly educated You know, at a small geographic scale, if you have one of the largest universities in the world.
1: You know, again, back to the focus group, um, I do think there's a little bit of a bias. I mean, it's not great. I mean, anywhere that gets you sort of outside the D.C. media bubble, I think, is going to be healthy. Um, But I think there is a little bit of a bias because, um, you know, how do we appeal to suburban voters? How do we appeal to sort of these more upscale white picket fence Demographics. I, I do still think that there is a little bit of that bias in the industry that has only started to shift mm-hmm. a little bit with the sort of greater understanding of the Trump voter and the fact that th- those voters come are coming from a very different place.
0: Yeah. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. So there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these midterms were bad for Republicans because of poor performance in the suburbs. Um, but that's sort of a narrative that, you know, you can draw from the exit polls, which I know you're a big critic of, um, as well as, you know, a variety of other different polling sources. But in your analysis of of voter files that have come back, turnout numbers, uh, one, how dramatic was the the switch? What happened in the suburbs? And is it something that is in your view, a one time occurrence that Republicans can bring b- shift back when Trump's on the ballot in two years, or is this like the beginning of a longer term problem? So, what
1: happened is uh, the people's vote for the House snapped into uh, what their vote in the presidential race was. And, you know, it appeared to be like a huge shift in terms of seats lost because Republicans were actually overperforming Donald Trump in those areas. And it's kind of what it, that turns out to have been an artificial. Overperformance uh, and uh, what, where Trump was in this new reality, where he's the president, not just some crazy man at the top who happens to be at the top of the presidential ticket that you know Republicans can kind of keep their distance from, uh, as was the case in 2016, uh, that there uh, you know there does turn out to be there is no differentiation, and so it's not too surprising, I guess, that uh, we saw this sudden collapse in the suburbs, but um, you know it was really a function of people voting for the House like they voted for president. Now he's going to be on the ballot in two years. I think it's a safe assumption. People will again vote (laughs) probably for some of these down ballot offices like they're voting for president, or maybe not if you know if people can work out their feelings on Trump at the top of the ticket and maybe split their ticket uh, down ballot, which they didn't really have an option to do this time as much. I feel like maybe that's what we'll see. But I think it's more likely that we're going to see these results that are more in line with what's going on at the top of
0: the ticket. So on this show, the day after the election, I gave the polls an overall grade of, I think, a C plus. I then upgraded it. I, I walked my grade back. I upgraded it to a B minus the, that the public polls got a B minus for the midterms. Uh, am I being too harsh? what What was your assessment of the data we had as a con- you know media consuming public headed into election day? Did the pollsters and the forecasters do right by us, or were we misled? Uh,
1: I mean, i I would probably, and I've tweeted this, I said, wow, mm-hmm. the polls were actually right such that I kind of worry about people placing. their faith in the polls again, and, you know, perhaps being disappointed in the future. But if you look at least the 538 forecast, I mean, you had, you know, a forecast that was calling for uh, democratic gains in the high 30s, they end up getting 40. I mean, you had uh, forecasts that I think um, largely because you had that po- all that polling coming out of the New York Times uh, that was a very high quality house race polling that you don't normally see in elections and uh, that you know that actually that those were done the right way and uh, it turns out at least at the house level things were very accurate now as you've pointed out you had a number of states you had Florida uh, as a key example uh, you had Republicans sort of under outperforming their final polls in some of these, these states that where they pick up seats uh, in Missouri and in, in Indiana too. I, you know, I think that's kind of a function of there being these are Republican states mm-hmm. and you have this uh, sort of look at uh, these states were also wrong in 2016 too. Now, these are the same types of places where the yeah. polls got it wrong in 2016. But I think most, more good than bad on the polls this, this year.
0: Uh, in terms of the the forecasting models, you know, I mean, the, the Nate Cohn stuff was fascinating to me because I was on the show like kind of a skeptic. And I'm so, well, one, I still don't understand how they have the budget to do yeah. what they did. Um, but I mean, the transparency of the sheer number of phone calls and that polling wound up being really good. It wound up being really good. And you've talked to him a lot about what he did. I mean, what's your take? Like, how did Nate Cohn... Crack the code. What did he do? (laughs) Uh, So
1: I think he did uh, what I think, uh, you know, I think uh, he did a poll the way I think we would at Echelon, (laughs) you know, and I think using. Oh, uh, good. Really? uh, Yeah, that's uh, that's, (laughs) uh, just throw I'll just throw that in there. No, but I think that uh, methodologically they use voter files, which is not something that can't that media pollsters always do. But they also use it in the right way to try and get the right mix of people, maybe spend more money to talk to people who are less likely to vote so you can build out these different scenarios of how, uh, you know, adjust turnout up and down uh, to see how that will shift. Now, their final baseline assumption actually turns out to be was the one that was closest to what actually happened uh, in the election, um, which we obviously saw a record turnout. Uh, but, I, but I do think that, um, you know, in, in terms of how he did things, it's ve- it was very close to how a campaign, you know, that's doing the right things, a campaign pollster that's doing the right things would sample uh, the right audience. I, I think he picked up those nuances pretty well.
0: So now looking ahead to 2020, it feels like every election – Something is the cool, hot tech data thing that gets everyone spun up. So, you know, in two thousand and wasn't it? Was it in two thousand and six that you were first? What was the year when you were first? Like, hey guys, we need an Act Blue on the right. Like you said, I, like, I think
1: it was back in two thousand six. It's not sooner <laughs> than that, and that was pretty clear.
0: Uh, which now there are echoes of that again because Act right. Blue raised a boatload. Eleven D gajillion yeah, dollars. Later, That's a hey, scientific hey. fact. That's the exact number from the FEC. Eleven D gajillion dollars for Democratic candidates. Um so okay, two thousand six, like, hey, this online fundraising thing. We need to get into this. Uh to you know, two thousand and eight, you have Barack Obama. Oh, those these kids organized on this Facebook thing in Iowa is crazy. Uh you know, twenty ten you know, every year just feels like there's something. Um, twenty sixteen, it was everybody getting spun up over Cambridge Analytica, which we have discussed at length on this show. Like, what what was the thing of 2018? Was there a thing of 2018? And what will be the thing of 2020?
1: Oh, well, I think that one thing uh, we had in 2018 is texting. So it's sort of, uh, you know, in terms of, like, how a campaign mobilizes its supporters or how a campaign goes out and gets volunteers or goes out and talks to people, it's been pretty analog in terms of you're usually trying to call people on the phone and oftentimes that's a landline phone and we I'm sure you've discussed several times how that is increasingly not a mm-hmm. very good strategy so there's this interesting loophole in terms of how you know cuz normally I can't just blast text everyone but uh, it turns out if I have a volunteer or if I have somebody <laughs> behind the computer who just presses the button, uh, I can send text to... Oh, so
0: there's a person responsible for fake Mike Pence spamming my phone that's now. That's
1: right. Somebody. I will find them. So all of that... <laughs> I will
0: find them and stop them.
1: Uh, good luck with that. Good luck with that. But that that was a breakout technology, oh. let's say. I mean... I look at it and I'm like, that's pretty cool because, I mean, it didn't used to be it's the case. It's a new way for me to harass you. It's a people. new way to to... <laughs> To, it might be a new way for us to get people to take surveys on cell phones, too. So, yep, uh, yep. Uh, But uh, that was a breakout technology that both sides really uh, used this time.
0: My uh, Just a fun anecdote. My friend Nicole, who I grew up with in Florida, she has recently moved to North Carolina, has re-registered to vote in North Carolina, but has remained somehow on the Florida Democratic Party's lists. And so she first got the first text that was like, hey, Nicole, this is... Joe from the Florida Democratic Party just reminding you that your polling place is blah 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 and she responded back like no actually i i moved i i don't live there anymore i've already voted here in north carolina like thanks good luck or whatever and then like a day or two later she gets a text from like hey this is Marissa from the Florida Democratic Party with, like, the exact same text. And so she just started responding to the each text with a screenshot of the last exchange. So it became this, like, Russian nesting doll of, like, <laughs> six layers deep inception of, like, her sending screenshots Mm-mm. of, like, hey, Joe. Hey, Marissa. Hey, Scott. Hey, whatever from the—it was bad. So it didn't seem that there was an actual person— um, reading. or Probably or not or Joe or Marissa. Joe and Marissa or, were not taking down the data that said Nicole had moved to North Carolina and you should take her off your list.
1: A lot of these things aren't quite <laughs> as sophisticated as they're made out to be in reality.
0: <laughs> I just I've just really enjoyed yeah. her like succession of screen grabs. It was great. So OK, so texting, that will be a new thing. I mean, there's I guess I also wonder how much of this will depend on who wins the election, because it also feels like in elections where Democrats do well, and you've tweeted about this extensively, that like when Democrats use new technology, it's treated as this exciting, groundbreaking thing. But when Republicans use technology, it's like this sinister Oh no! What's you know? What's your take on that? I mean, won't this narrative be defined by who wins in twenty twenty as well? I
1: think so. I mean, and in fact, um, you had Trump who did a lot of things that a Republican has never done with Facebook, and uh, you know, certainly raised a lot of money through the platform and had this massive level of engagement, and uh, you know, a lot of you know, a lot of that has been recognized. Most sophisticated people are like, will say that he did a good job of that, Um, but at the same time, you've still have been continuing this sort of uh, lots of new reports out this week about russian disinformation campaigns and things like that trying to i think muddy the waters a little i mean it kind of has this effect of muddying the waters a little bit in in terms of trump's 2016 facebook strategy uh because you know people kind of wonder what well, was this disinformation was this fake news uh and so uh, you know it remains to be seen what the breakout Technology will be, I mean, it's always something different every four years. Everybody wants to try to project out, um, Mm -hmm. you know, what it was four years ago, and it'll be something slightly refined off of that. And what, you know, generally tends to happen is it's something different, and it's something oftentimes from the past that gets resuscitated, like ActBlue.
0: So, uh, you know, the other thing that that reminds me of is in 2016, one of the big reasons that the post the post-mortems on the polling industry have found the polls were wrong, was getting the education balance off, not talking to enough people without college degrees. Uh, You know, four years before that, the big problem was, oh, you weren't calling enough cell phones, so you were missing younger and non-white voters. Do you have any sense of, like, if the polling industry screws it up in 2020, why will they have screwed it up? Like, what's... What's the variable that you think is going to be more influential that that may not be getting accounted for? Is there is there anything like lurking out there that raises alarm bells for you?
1: Uh, I've also been frustrated by this narrative that keeps shifting because it seems like the error, uh, you know, we blame basically if the polls are more Republican one cycle, uh, we kind of chalk it up to you know, an error that, you know, specific to Republican voters were underrepresented in some way by the education weights. Um, You know, in fact, such that um, in 2016, the most overperforming metric uh, the most over i guess the o- most overperforming according to apor type of survey was an ivr survey. oh
0: you're just bringing that up to troll me uh, yeah. you love and then, ivr and you know i hate no but
1: IVR. but in 2012 <laughs> it was online surveys I know. right and so it, 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 there's almost you know there, there's kind of this no rhyme or reason to why the polls were wrong in successive election cycles and you know and i would argue well, maybe IVR wasn't the best, but because it tends to be older, whiter, more Republican, it just appeared to be the best. And uh, it appeared to be because it was a more Republican. The polls just broke for Donald Trump Yeah, in the same way the polls maybe broke for Barack Obama. And then people trying to read in some method methodology reason for that. Um, and it seems like, it's kind of random <laughs> from cycle to cycle what the problem is at least this year fortunately doesn't seem like there was a i, I at least i would argue there didn't seem to be a major problem. I keep,
0: man, I keep, my, my initial grade, that C+, that's going to haunt me. I was so negative the day after the election, and it wound up the polls were much better than I thought. So Patrick, where can people find your stuff? How can they subs- tell our listeners what The Intersection is and how they can oh, subscribe Oh yeah, I mean,
1: so uh, The Intersection is my newsletter. It is echeloninsights.com slash The Intersection. Uh, it is, a, you know, I, I like to say it's a written down version of The Pollsters. Um, so we end up covering a lot of the, of the same topics, but this Middle America Project. Uh, people can find that at echeloninsights.com slash map, M-A-P.
0: And they can find you on Twitter at, at Patrick Ruffini. Yes. If they are bold they... and feeling brave and <laughs> wish to wade into those waters. Uh, fantastic. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining Thanks me for and talking me a little again. bit about the Middle America Project. You've been listening to The Pollsters. I am co-host Kristen Soltis-Anderson. Margie's been out this week, but you can find me on Twitter at at KSoltis Anderson or the both of us at at The Pollsters. You can find us at www.thepolsters.com or on Facebook. And we're going to be off next week. It's the Christmas holidays, but we will be back in the new year. Stay tuned. We'll talk to you in 2019.